grab a seat. Um, if you could open your Bibles to the church Bibles to page 602, and that's Psalm 95. The words will also be on the screen, um, but it's great to have God's Word opened um, as, as well and have it that, make sure you know that what I'm reading is from God's Word and it is true. Sam just wanted to check is it recording? Do you want me to record on the thing? You're all right. That's great. Thank you. So, just want to let's prepare our hearts as we do this because um, being really challenged this week as I've been looking at be, being devoted to worship or devoted worshippers. Um, when we come to God's words, um, even on our own or corporately like this, or when it's read out, it is powerful. It is God's word. It is truth. And so let's prepare our hearts and ready ourselves to hear from God right now, even me reading some words of the Bible off the screen here. So I'm just going to, pr- I'm going to pray for us again, actually, as we do this. Lord, thank you that as an act of worship, we can come to you and we can hear from your word when it's spoken to us. Lord, let these words that we read from your word, that are your words, speak to us. Let us expect that you will speak to us. Let's expect that you will change us. Amen. So Psalm 95 reads this. It says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation, and I said, They are people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declare on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Amen. Well, now, don't know if anybody remembers what they were doing or what happened 30 years ago last night. On the 20th of November, 1991. Can anyone remember what happened? No? Yep. Brilliant. Thank you. You were breathing. That's great. That's true. Ben? No. I didn't. Not quite. It was better than that. Well, what actually happened was my brother and I were mascots for Port Vale, the mighty Port Vale, against Liverpool, the mighty giants of Liverpool Football Club, in the third round FA Cup replay. This is my brother, taller, 
There's me. And then there is the great John Jeffers, the left winger, my, my idol. Phenomenal player. And I got to meet the Liverpool football team. Anyone remembers? Is anyone likes football? Bruce Grobelar, Jan Molby, John Barnes, Graham Soonis was the manager. He actually told me to do one in a not very nice way, but I'll talk about that another time. Um, but I got to take some shots at Port Vale's goalkeeper, Mark Grew, and he saved them all. 19,000 people were watching it, packed into Vale Park. And then after I'd finished showing people how to play football, me and my brother went into the stands to sing with 19,000 Port Vale fans, PVFC, Johnny Rudge's Black and White Army. And I had my shirt on. This isn't the shirt of the time because it wouldn't fit. It's inside out, Mickey. I had my Port Vale shirt. Got it last year. Brilliant. My team. And from that moment, from that moment on... I was a Port Vale fan through and through, never looked back. And it was the most amazing time when I was 10 years old. And I was singing on the terraces. You could stand back then, you didn't have to sit down. And I was worshipping the Port Vale team. I loved them. My heart was for them. When we scored to equalise to make it one all, I was in tears. And then those tears continued as Liverpool scored several more goals to thrash us. (laughs) But I wear this kit and wore it with pride. Every, well, I wouldn't take it off for about, for about a month. I wouldn't take it off. It was amazing. Well, a bit of a tenuous link, but um, um, Tim Keller talks about worship. He says, what you see in the Bible, worship is the act of ascribing, I should keep up with this, shouldn't I? There we go. The act of ascribing ultimate value to something. The act of ascribing ultimate value to something that engages your entire being and this is important it engages your mind your will and your emotions mind will and emotions and for me my mind will and emotions on that night were completely for Port Vale Football Club I learned all the players names I learned their hobbies I learned everything about them. I knew the Port Vale schools every, every year. I could recite from 1990 to 2000 every Port Vale school, whether they won or lost. I was truly worshipping them. But what we see here in Psalm 95 is we see the psalmist use some emotional language. There's emotion in worship. There is emotion in worship. Look at verse 1. It says, He sang. He invites us to shout aloud. There's music that's happening. But it is more than singing. It is more than just emotion when we come to worship. There is also the language of reason. We have to reason it in our... Uh, in, sorry, of submission, sorry. We, there's, there's, there's the language of submission. It says here, it says, Come and kneel, in verse 6, and bow down. We have to recognize our position before God. We have to bow down and recognize his greatness and, let our, and, and submit our will to his. But also, there is the language of reason. We have to reason in our minds that this is true. We have to understand that it is true what God says about himself. He says, hear my voice. Hear his voice, the psalmist says. Do not harden your hearts. We have to reason. 
when we worship, when we come to attribute value to something. So there is emotion, there is a, a submission of our will, and there is reason. Mind, will, and emotions. And so when we talk about worship, it's a combination of those things. We cannot come and worship, whatever we're worshipping, with just raw emotion. It's not true worship. Equally, just going through the motions and saying, yes, I believe this, singing those songs isn't true worship without the emotional aspect of it. And so I don't know about you, but I was thinking about this over the last 20 years, and I've um, been, well, nearly 20 years that I've been a believer. There have been so many Sundays that I have come to gather together with the people of God, and yes, I affirm everything that is true. I listen to the sermons, and I say, yes, amen, that's good, but without the emotional, the heart, uh, the emotional aspect uh, with it. But on the flip side, there's times where I can just engage emotionally without my mind or my reason or even submitting to what is going on or what's being said. When we come together and we gather together, we we have an opportunity to, to worship the Lord with our whole being, not just part of it, all of us. That's what he wants. And so this begs the question, what is it that engages our entire being? What is it that engages our entire being? Well, it is about assigning the ultimate value to something. It is the act of actually assigning that value, saying, yes, I value this more than anything. And the psalmist does this. He invites us to do that. In verse 4, he says, for God is great. He is great. He is the king. The sea is his. The dry lands are his in verse 5. He is, he is our God. He is our shepherd. He tends to the flock in verse 7. And what the psalmist is doing to attribute full value to God, he is actually doing an inventory about God. He's actually listing why God is worthy of being praised. And it's from there that then he explodes into worship. Without us knowing who God is and what he has done, naming why he is worthy of our praise, we will not be able to explode into life, into worship. I'm a massive fan of um, Only Fools and Horses. Anyone else like Only Fools and Horses? 25 years of Del Boy Trotter and Rodney living in um, Nelson Mandela House. I know it counts the state in, oh, where is it? Peckham, thank you. You know it well, don't you, Vic? Peckham. And, yeah, the, Robin, the yellow Robin Reliant. And, and they have this market stall that's really dodgy. They sell dodgy goods. Um, and I love it. And every, every episode, Del Boy says the same thing to Rodney. What's the line that he says? This time, I can't do the accent. Go on, go on, Cockney. Brilliant. Let's hope that, that, is, that is genius. If you remember anything else, remember that and watch Only Fools and Horses. But, but one of the last episodes of the, of the last series, and I recommend watching it, it's absolutely hilarious. Um, but they're clearing out their shed, and Del Boy stumbles across this family heirloom that he knew he had, but they'd stuck in a shed, and it's this watch. And he thought, oh, we're going to go and get all the stuff valued anyway. We'll get this valued as well. And he takes it to a valuer. And the valuer looks at it. He looks at the watch, opens it up, thinks, oh, this looks pretty special. Looks at some books, sees that, oh, man, yeah, this could be genuine. Checks the back, who's it made by, really inspects it closely. 
And when he sees it and studies it, he realizes that it's the most uh, expensive piece of jewelry that he's ever held in his life. The valuer really understands what this watch is worth. But Del Boy has had this thing for 25, 30, 40 years, and he hasn't been living in the light of the value of that watch that he owns. And the psalmist is calling us to do exactly what the valuer does here, to inspect what we are presented with, to inspect God, to think rationally about it, to look at him, do an inventory of who God is and what he has done, until it dawns on us the value and the beauty of what we have. And I confess, I do not spend enough time doing that. Certainly before I come together on a Sunday with with everybody here, I do not spend enough time preparing myself, um, realising who I'm coming to the presence of with God's people. You see, worship comes from the old English word, worth-ship. Worth. I can't pronounce it. Worth-ship which means to see and grasp something's worth and then to attribute and, or to live in accordance to it. See and grasp what something is worth, see its value, and live in accordance to it. You see, many say they know God. Many people say they know God. But actually, they only have God the way that Del Boy had that watch, completely unaware of its true value and its true worth. And so, guys, the key for us The key for us is the difference between living a limp, a long life and a transformed life, a life of thanksgiving and a life of joy, a life of true worship. It's not the difference between believing in God and not believing in God. It is the difference between believing in God and truly worshipping him. Let me say that again. The difference between living a limp, a long life, a life of mediocrity, a life of um, media, uh, media, I can't even say the word, mediocrity of the Christian life, not having the joy-filled life that we can have, is not the difference between believing in God and not believing in God. The difference between believing in God and worshipping God. We have to worship him. It is good and right that we do. And when we are captivated by him, when we see his worth, we will then live in accordance to how he wants us to live, to live that fruitful life, to live the life that he has designed for us to live. And so when we worship, we worship with our minds. We worship by submitting. We uh, worship with our emotion as well. Emotion is good when we come to worship God. Well, why should we worship God? Well, look at verse 3 of Psalm 95. He says this, For the Lord is the great God. He is the great king above all other gods. The great king above all gods. Small g. The psalmist knows that everybody worships something. We all worship something. We're either uh, worshipping the one true God or we're worshipping a lesser God. And Paul says the same thing in Romans 1. He says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And we all fall into that. Even as believers, we fall into that trap as well. But the essence of worship is to recognise where your heart has ascribed ultimate value to something else other than God and to move it and transfer it onto God. That is what changes our life. So can I ask you a question to take away and think about? Where is your worship? 
What have you been ascribing more value to than God? What is it that is actually Lord of your life? You see, you'll know what it is when it's whatever you say will give you ultimate happiness. Whatever you feel is going to give you satisfaction, whatever gives you purpose, maybe it's your job, maybe it's your house, maybe it is friendships, maybe it is, well, you fill in the gap, whatever it could be, we live according to it. Our life, our purpose is directed in that direction. Our decisions are made in the light of that. And you see, the thing is, it, we go for those things, and some of them are good things, like houses, like jobs, like money. They're all good things, but it's when they become the ultimate thing for us that they become worship. And then they rob us of any joy because they cannot deliver what they promise. They cannot deliver the comfort we seek. They cannot deliver fulfillment. They cannot deliver satisfaction. In fact, they enslave us. They're the things we think about at night, the things that keep us up in the middle of the night. The things that we think about instead of giving these things over to the Lord. You see, Becky Manley Pippett says this. He says, we do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. Because we have to, she says, we have to live for something. We have to. Our entire being is centered around it, whether we realize it or not. All our problems come from wrong worship. When our minds, emotions, and our submission are all in the wrong place. I wasn't sure whether to share this with you or not, but I'm going to. So, I did an, I did an inventory this week. I did an inventory of something that from time to time can become um, a thing in my life that I think replaces God. And I, there's many, but I'm going to give an example of one. And here it is. And I even, put a, I even did a table for you. So sometimes I can worship, I can put ultimate value on a house, which seems ridiculous, doesn't it? On a new house. A good thing, and a house is a good thing, so don't tell me, it's a good thing. But I know in my heart, sometimes it can become the thing that I want more than anything. And I can justify saying it's going to be a quieter road, more space for the gospel. And that's true, that's good things. Greater house value, a driveway, oh, I'd love a driveway. <laughs> Opportunity for the future to move on to another house. But what it leads to in my heart is it leads to a lot of time on right move looking at houses that I'm never, ever going to be able to afford or have, daydreaming about how I'd have each of the rooms, where, I'd, where I would sleep, where the children would sleep, what I'd do with the garden, or get someone else to do with the garden. And it just leads to dissatisfaction. It leads to dissatisfaction. With my house, I look around and think, oh, wouldn't it be great if I just didn't have that wall there and I had a little bit more space for this? It leads to dissatisfaction with my neighbours and less effort to go and get to know them. It leads to missed opportunities for the gospel because I'm not thinking about them because I'm thinking about the future and living somewhere else. Now, as I say, it's not a bad thing. Sometimes moving house is a good thing and we may well move house at some point, so don't judge me if we do move house at some point. I'm not saying we will. Um, but I know in my heart that I can attribute that the place of God. It can become my God. 
And then I did an inventory of, well, what about God? How can I, what, if I can put a list of things about God down on the other side? Well, he's given me every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. He will never leave me nor forsake me. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. He's forgiven my sins. He's, off, he's given me eternal life. And it leads to me spending time in his word. That's healthy. That's good, isn't it? Daydreaming about the goodness of God and his love for me. Time in prayer. It leads me to being satisfied with where I am and what I'm doing. The people of God that he's put in my life. The the people that he's put in my life. I seize opportunities to share the gospel. And I live in the now but also look forward to the future. And it was really humbling doing that. And I could probably put half a dozen things on the left-hand side of that and be equally humbled. And so I just encourage you, maybe it's something worth doing, having a look. What is it at the moment that is robbing you of the joy, robbing God of his rightful worship and his rightful place? You see, worship of God helps us pull our hearts off those things that control us and distort us and onto the life giver. There are so many things that we let control our life that don't need to that rob us of our joy. But I found this helpful, that there, there, we can grow in worshipping better. I was careful how I say this. I'm saying it because Tim Keller said this bit, so I think it's safe to say that we will never worship perfectly, but we can get better at it. We can get better at it. And so this is a few things that I wanted to take away of how we can worship well. How we can worship in our minds and in our hearts and submitting to the Lord. And he says, and there's just a few things, and I've added one on anyway, but community. He talks about community first of all. And the psalmist does it here in, in, in Psalm 95. Look at the language in verse 1. Let us, verse 6, let us. Verse 7, our God. We are called to worship in community. We worship independently, but we also are called to worship in community. C.S. Lewis, whose name is Jack, I didn't know that until recently, but C.S. Lewis's name was Jack, and he had two best friends called Charles, I don't, yeah, how does C.S. Lewis have a name of Jack? I don't quite know. Anyway, um, he had two friends called Charles and Ronald. And sadly, Charles died. And after being a thick of thieves group of three, there was just C.S. Lewis and Ronald. And he was... He was sad, obviously, that his friend had passed away, but he also saw the opportunity to get to know Ronald better, even better, to get to know um, a a new side of his personality. And then what he soon realised was that only Charles was able to bring out a certain part of, of Ronald's personality. Without Charles there, Ronald didn't show that part of his personality. And so... Because, basically, individuals cannot draw out the whole personality of another person. It takes a community to do that. And so if that's true for us, that are finite human beings, it's going to be even more truer of our God, who has so much to him. And so that's why we have a community, to worship together, because we worship in diverse ways. We are diverse people, male, female, young, old. I don't know what bracket I'm in of that. I'm going to go young. Um, Black, white, The more we see one another worship God, the more we will enjoy a fuller experience of God and who he is. When we see people worship in different ways, 
We see people speak in different ways. When we hear people worship in different ways, on bowed knees, standing up, hands in the air, when we see that, we see a fuller personality of our God. And so it's so important that we gather together each week to do that in community. And secondly, truth. This all falls down if we do not accept what the psalmist accepts, which is that scripture is truth. The psalmist accepts what the prophets have said about God for him to be able to say, God is great. God is greater than any other gods. We must... I'm going to do what Kenny does. We must accept that this is the truth of God. It's what it says. God's word, breathed out, breathed out by God, written, um, written by man. But every word here is from God's mouth. We must submit to it. Submit to the word of God that it's true. That is how we can worship him well. And then next, spirit. We worship him in spirit. To do that means basically to come into his presence. And we have the Holy Spirit. We can worship at any point, in any place, at any time. But the psalmist here in Psalm 95 calls the people of God to come before him with thanksgiving. In verse 6 he says, let us bow down, worship and kneel before him. Let's come into his presence. And we have the Holy Spirit, but I have to confess, sometimes I think I, I'll speak of myself here, cannot expect much from God and his Holy Spirit to move. The Bible describes the Holy Spirit as a wind in John 3.8. So it moves. We don't, we, um, we don't generate it ourselves. It's all from God. But it moves and it works and it's powerful. And so a Christian who is skillful at worship is like a sailor that is skilled. Because sailors can't generate the wind. They know they can't do that. But they are ready for it. Sailors seek the wind so they can get moving quickly. And they know what to do when it comes. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's looking at the truth. He's expecting it. And then expecting us, then at once drawing the people of God into his presence. Likewise, we should expect the spirit to move. When we come together, even when we're alone, but when we come together corporately as well, we should expect the Spirit to move. We should be ready for it, ready for the wind to blow and to take us where it chooses. But if we come to worship, when we come together, and when I talk about worship, I'm not just talking about singing, I'm talking about when we pray, when we hear the word preached, anything can be worshipped when we're attributing it to God. But if we expect only a little, we will only get a little. If we expect only a little, we will only get a little. Let's be skillful sailors, expecting the Spirit of God to blow and to move. And then finally, Romans 12, 1-2, tells us to worship God as living sacrifices, our whole bodies as living sacrifices, acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. It says this in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Our whole lives are to be acts of worship. Not just when we sing, 
not just when we hear the word preached. Our whole lives are an act of worship. That is our us bowing a submission to him. And verse 2 is crucial because it talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. The life of a worshipper is a life that doesn't settle for the transformation that you're experienced at this moment. We don't settle for how God has changed us now. We carry on being transformed, expecting to be transformed. That is the life of a worshipper that sacrifices and gives over his whole life. Expect and offer our lives as a life of worship, committing to being transformed by him. That's what it means to be a devoted worshipper, being willing to have our lives changed and transformed by him, not accepting where we're at. Too often we can accept where we're at, can't we, and just say, oh, I'm quite pleased with the growth I've seen in myself. But no, let's, let's expect him to change, change us. But if worship doesn't change how we live, doesn't change our character, doesn't change our life patterns, then it is not real worship. We've been looking at Acts 2 as our springboard for the Devoted series. And, we see, and we've read it every time that everybody was filled with awe and wonder Signs were being performed, and all the believers together were worshipping God. They were, had everything in common. They sold their property, their possessions to anyone who had need, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, and they were praising God. These people that we see, the early apostles that we see in Acts 2, were people that had been transformed, that their lives were a living sacrifice. They'd received the Spirit. They were spending time with the Lord. They were worshipping him, and then they went out... And they lived their lives as a living sacrifice to God. And in a moment, we're going to look at some people. I think Nikki's going to lead us in a time of looking at some scriptures. People that worshipped Jesus when they saw who he was and they worshipped him. The the woman that washed Jesus' hair, the sinful woman who washes Jesus' hair, the the woman at the well. People that that gave their lives over to to remove the things they were worshipping. And to put God in his rightful place. I want us, I want myself, I want us as a church to be devoted worshippers. People that love the word of God. People that love worshipping together. People that love to devote themselves to breaking of bread. All those things. I'm just going to finish there. I'm just going to pray for us. And then I think we're going to sing... Uh, respond in a time of worship but Lord we pray that you would help us remove anything that we have put in your place Lord I pray that the things that rob us of our joy of that truly transformed life that joy filled life that we would remove that you would help remove Lord, I pray that we would have our lives living as an act of sacrifice, an act of worship to you, Lord, that we would give our whole lives over to you, not just part, but our all. And Lord, we know it's hard, we know it's not easy, we can't necessarily manufacture it, Lord, but I pray that we would be people that, that worship in community, that worship in truth and in spirit and with our whole lives, Lord. I pray that we would be devoted to you above all else. And I pray that there would be so much joy that we experience in living a life that is lived for you and praising your name. Amen.